Uh, you may be seated. We will pray for the, the Spirit's help. Um, I don't have Scripture to read to start here, but I, I will. Lord, I pray that you attend to us in, in this hour, and um, may we be better for being your people and coming here this morning to worship. Amen. Let me pray one more thing, all right? Lord, I also pray that you protect us from the enemies, whether they're within us at times, Lord, the, the world of men and, and what is produced as opposition, your opposition in this life. And we also pray against those heavenly enemies that we don't see that would like to disrupt and destroy. And we also know that your good ones, your mighty angels, attend worship with us. And we, we ask you to prevail on our behalf. Amen. Sorry, I had a note that I wanted to make sure I prayed something in particular. I'm going to have five sermons total pertaining to this concept of fear. Fear. And I, anxieties and phobias, that's part of the, uh, the, t- uh, the sentence or the title of, of these sermons. But they both fall into the topic of being fear-based. They're fear-based things. I need this introductory sermon. I actually called Bob Krieger and I said, hey, are you, uh, are you able to maybe lead worship on Sunday? Um, seeing as he had his sermon prepared for last week and we canceled. And uh, I said, because I could use a little more time. And he replied, well, unfortunately, we'll be in Manitowoc all weekend. So I thought I was going to buy myself more time that way. But um, but I decided instead to create an introductory sermon to kind of lay things out, and I think that'll help me too. But secondly, I do want to uh, prepare for you uh, the topics that are going to follow in the next four sermons. And I, I've been reading a lot, um, praying often, thinking hard. I've been thinking a lot about all of you with your different, let's just call them anxieties and things right now. And I want this sermon series to help. I want to help all of us. I have fears. There's not a person in the room, frankly, that doesn't fear something or someone. And the thing we need in, in place of fear is peace. Peace even in the midst of danger. Now, it seems quite natural, just to get things started, that fear might be your response. Let's say you walked out of the house in the morning, you're going to go off to work, and you see an actual lion in the street. A lion, like tigers and lions and bears. In the street. I think you're going to go back in your house pretty quickly, right? 
I think you are uh, probably going to tell your family, don't go outside, I can't believe this, you're going to call a neighbor or two, you call the police perhaps, whatever. And the adrenaline was, will be, you know, coursing through your, your blood, right? At least at first when you're like... Same thing might happen if you're climbing a tree. These kids climb this tree out in the back behind church, and if you get up pretty high and, and you put your foot on a branch and it snaps, there's going to be some adrenaline coursing at that point, too. It's going to be a little scary, I would think. Car, if you're driving a car 55, 65 miles per hour and uh, country road, and all of a sudden the car coming from the other direction pulls into your lane, things get real interesting really quickly, Right? It's reasonable. It almost seems uh, God-given, doesn't it, to be afraid at that moment or call it what you want. High alert, I'm on high alert or uh, very cautionary. Maybe some other adrenaline-affecting response, appropriate response. Okay, we had a conversation a little bit about this fear idea in the council room one night and anxiety, getting anxious about things. And uh, I think Paul and, I don't know, maybe it was Bob and Paul brought up, well, they kind of get that way a little bit before a big project. They're going to go to work. They've got a big project. They want to make sure everything is in its right place. Is that wrong or is that right? Is that a good thing? I think it's a good thing. So they're anxious a little bit that that they don't miss something or that uh, things happen in an order that's appropriate for the whole project to be successful. I don't know of a, a better word to describe that kind of thing, but it seems normal. However, if you don't go out of your house because there is a one in a thousand possibility of there being a line in the street, or a one in 100,000 possibility that there may be a line in the street. Now, that's a different kind of, that's a different kind of fear. That's another, another kind altogether. It, it borders a little bit on irrationality, though we do often make some life decisions on the odds, don't we? We do make life decisions on the odds. What are the odds that someone's going to break into my house? Well, they exist. It's a possibility. I'm going to put a lock on my door. Right? Never happened in all my life, but I'm going to put a lock on the door because there's a chance. Or I buy insurance. Right? Why do I buy insurance? I haven't gotten into an accident. Am I afraid? I'm playing the odds here. There's a, there's a good chance that I could get into an accident, or maybe the chance is not that great, but if I do, I sure don't want to be wiped out financially. Or you build walls. Why would you build a wall, right? So that, it's somewhat understandable to, to think in terms of the odds, but you can get crazy with that stuff. 
some, some fear goes a step farther from even that reasonableness. Some fears are quite ridiculous, unreasonable, irrational. They don't even concur with reality. These fears are like, they're like playing make-believe in your head. Telling yourself a make-believe horror story or something. I'll just name a few potentials here. I got, I got this one. Claustrophobia, right? Fear of confined spaces. I think it first started with me to be afraid of confined spaces in a legitimate way. Brothers, brother zipped, zipped me up in a sleeping bag that you could zip all the way around and then you jumped on me, right? I mean, I could have legitimately suffocated. My dad used to lay on top of me, tickle me when we were on the floor together, and I would be, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. That, that makes some sense, right? He, he would kind of mock me and say, go like this, while he's still on top of me. All right, I would not have said back then I had claustrophobia. I wouldn't have known what that word even was. However, later on in life, things started cropping up a little differently for me. Riding in the back of my sister's automobile at night, heading up to Superior for college, warm air blowing into my nostrils, the music was loud. I was a dead man if I didn't get out of the back seat of that car. It was a two-door. I'm going to die here. Amy, pull the car over. Pull the car over now. Right? Well... I don't often ride in the back seats of vehicles, even with customers. I'll let them know if a few of us are going to get into a vehicle together, front seat by the window. I don't say it that way, but I'm going to have to sit in the front seat or I'm going to have to walk or take my own car. That's basically how I, I go about it. I don't have to drive, but I'm not going to have somebody's seat up in front of my face where all I can do is have the salvation of looking out the side window that's crazy. Lately, okay, I'd say in the last couple of years, I started thinking this way about going through the car wash. All right? Going through the car wash. I've gone through the car wash multiple dozens and dozens of times in my life. But I started thinking, you know, when I'm in there, and that back door closes and that front door closes and all that water starts shooting at me, covering things up. I got to take my coat off, right? Turn the, turn the heat way down. But more recently, I've just decided, you know what? I'm going to pray. I'm just going to pray the whole time if I need to. I'm going to talk to God in this. And you know what I even told him? And, and my son Zachary laughed at this the other day. I said, you know what, Lord? If this is where you want to kill me, then so be it. And it really, that's helped. You laugh, that's helped. If this is really how you want my life to end, right, in this car wash, if those doors open in the car, somehow they come in and they find a skeleton in that vehicle, 
then so be it. Because I don't think I'm afraid of death, per se. I have those conversations with with my kids as well. I don't feel like I'm afraid of death. But maybe if I die from suffocation, <laughs> you know, those movies where they, someone gets buried alive, forget about it. Just watching the movie, I'm a dead man. I think, Paul, you were talking about one you watched the other day. I, I would just, no way. Okay, so that's me. Some of you can go, <laughs> nut job, right? And it is. It is a bit of a nut job thing. I, I fully admit that this is not right to be thinking that way. Something's got to change. Could it change? I think so. Have I ever really focused on taking and, and making uh, work, as, as Frank DeJager used to say, making work of it, of changing it? Not so much. I just avoid situations. Well, why don't I just get down to the brass tacks? That's the challenge you can challenge me with. Get down to the brass tacks on that. But here's some more. Maybe some of these... Uh, touch you. And I, I don't like the word phobia, but just, it's a fear, right? Arachnophobia, fear of spiders. Anybody got an issue with spiders, right? Acrophobia, the fear of heights. Aviophobia, fear of flying. I think maybe a brother-in-law has that problem. I'm not sure. I didn't ask. Aquaphobia, fear of water. Musophobia, the fear of mice. Glossophobia, fear of public speaking. Thanatophobia, fear of death. How about these? Infidelity, anxiety. The fear that your spouse will cheat. Paranoia, an intense distrust of others. Intense is probably the key word there. Hypochondria, a heightened fear of getting an illness, or every illness. Attachment anxiety, a fear of being separated from or abandoned by loved ones. Social anxiety, a fear of being evaluated and negatively judged by other people. Existential anxiety, the fear that your life has no purpose. Now, as I kept reading, I'm sure some of those last ones seemed a lot more like something you deal with. Fear, it can also drive people, drive us, to think the worst, right? Like chicken little, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, Over and over again, they become overly anxious. It's flu season. Oh, no, we're going to get the flu. The neighbors got the flu. They anguish over monthly bills, whether they will make enough to be stable. We've got to be stable. They're consumed by news reports. These days, it seems more than ever, things happening halfway around the globe, China or the Ukraine or California, right? These things take more attention than what is happening within the four walls of our own home or within the 10 square miles of our community. That shouldn't be. There's a lot of time and inner turmoil spent on these things. Fear, it lays waste 
to actual living, to actual living. Now, uh, whether your fears are normal ones, like a lion out in front of your house, or whether they are ridiculous or irrational fears, at some point, God must be your refuge, your ever-present help in time of need. I'm not certain, and this is part of, keep praying for me, I'm not certain he wants us to live in fear at all. At all. Lion or no lion. But, I am pretty confident he doesn't want us to be afraid of imaginary things. Further, the scripture shows us that all fear is conquerable, even the fear of death. Though I don't believe any fear is easily overcome unless you begin to go to God with it. And you go to Him often with it. Always with it. In fact, for me to say you need to go to God with it is wrong speech. It's the wrong way to say it. What I should say and what should be our habit is to stay with God in it. Stay with God. Like he's the father that lets us get into bed with him and and, and stay there all the time through nightmares and everything. We know he's always with us. He's always willing for us to be near him. He wants it. When you stay with him, then perhaps the only legitimate fear that will remain after time is that awesome and respectful fear we have for him, for God Almighty. A fear, I would add, that is attached to our love for him. Fear is, a matter, fear is a matter of the soul. You've got to hear this. The soul. I think most of us would agree with that. This is something inside. And the soul of a person, it, it certainly affects their body. What's going on in the inside, it kind of like works its way out especially if it's miserably going on inside of you for a long time. The soul is what gives life to the body. It animates. When God takes our souls from our bodies, all right, it spells death for the body. And it is there from within the soul that Jesus told us to love the Lord our God. What did he say? With all our heart, mind, and soul. And and when he says heart and mind, he's not talking about the beating heart and your brain. Heart, mind, and soul is that inner man. We're to love him with all of it. He did not tell us, in other words, to love our 
love them with our fingers and our, and our eyes and our brain and molecules and nose. Jesus spoke of the inner man. Our, our bodies, okay, they will be utilized to serve his kingdom for sure. I'm standing here, I'm talking with my hands. However, even, even people with physical problems, the diminished, the mentally d- diminished, okay, person, the lame, the blind, the deaf, and the diseased, and the dead, they can still love him fully. And love him deeply. There's an 18, 18th century preacher, Joseph Benson. He wrote this. Okay, I'm going to read this. And you just got to hear parts of it for sure. I'm going to read the paragraph. But you got to listen. Don't check out. He says, it is not only the external action, okay, but the internal affection of the mind that God requires an affection which influences all our actions in secret as well as in public. We must love him first with a sincere love, a sincere love, not in words and in tongue only, saying that we love him when our hearts are not with him, but inwardly and in truth. Second, with a strong love, the heart must be carried out toward him with great ardor and fervency of affection. A strong love. Third, with a superlative love. This is probably my favorite one. With a superlative love, we must love God above any creature whatsoever, and love nothing else, sorry, and love nothing besides him, but what we love for him and in subordination to him. In other words, the, the kind of love that you would have for your wife or your child or your neighbor or whatever the thing is that you're loving, you should only love it in, to the degree that he He wants you to love it, that you're loving it for him in subordination to him. That's pretty amazing. That's Augustinian, I think. For with an intelligent love or with all of our understanding as it is explained in Mark 12, 33, we must know him and therefore love him as as those that see good reason for loving him. And then five, I like this one too, with an entire love an undivided heart, the whole stream of our affections running toward him and being united in his love, oh, that this love of God may be shed abroad in our hearts. Well, I guess we got some growing up to do. We got some growing up to do. That love is not the kind of love I'm on track with, like I should be. Now, I haven't much to offer you, but only things God says in his word. That's kind of the preacher or the elder's duty, right? And frankly, there's much more here in the word of God 
in regard to this realm of the soul and love and fear and what he desires for you and me, then I'll even tap. I'm just going to crack the nut. But he gave us his word, and he sent to us his Holy Spirit, and this is what we offer. This is what the church offers. So if you've broken your toe, don't come to church to get it fixed. We'll pray for you. Go to a doctor, unless there's a doctor in the room. If you need a hip replaced, right, go to a hospital, have them perform the surgery. If cancer, oh, no, certainly come to the church for prayer. But otherwise, God has given us medicines and treatments. I recommend those, although my kids know if I'm stage whatever, there ain't going to be no treatments because I want to have this kind of time for those last few months where I can actually communicate. That's not a prescription for anybody else. That's just what I tell them. Oh, Dad, you don't know. Things are always improving. Things get better. you got to try. Yeah, <laughs> right. If you tear an ACL, I can't help you with that. If something is misfiring in your brain, okay, not the mind in your brain, there too, go to a neurologist. Do, do whatever. We know people who've had head injuries. It takes a while to recover Months and even years and on and on this goes. I, we've been given many medical solutions to treat and heal our defects. And though God and the scripture will comfort you in every trial, these physical ailments need to be tended to by physicians. God gifts us with them, and he still stays in, in the healing as is required for all healing. Yet when there's a soul ailment or defect, then you need, you need God's Word and His Holy Spirit to fix it. And this has for millennia been the church's playing field, the inner man, the soul before God. Now, I'll confess, and my kids know this, from the start, I bristle when I hear words like therapy, medication, psychologist, psychiatrist, social sciences, counseling sessions, psychoanalysis, and the like. I bristle. And I think it's because much of it has historically been an attempt to find explanations and solutions and treatments for the soul that do not depend upon God and his word. Not always. Historically. I've kind of felt that these main players of psychology have been godless men. And they've hijacked men's souls from the church to fly them to a different destination, a destination they don't even know where it is. If, if you didn't know, don't know, the Greek words, two Greek words, make up the word psychology, 
psych, and logia. Logia means study or knowledge, okay? Psych is the Greek word for soul or mind, not brain. Soul and mind are often used as equivalents. Psychology, therefore, is the study of the soul. And therefore, its examination of people, its theories, its practices, and recommendations need to be Christian. They need to be Christian. Perhaps Christian psychologists could offer legitimate help or counsel to humanity. I, I don't doubt that. Maybe a little at times. I doubt that. But not because they're incapable. But secular psychologists, secular psychologists can only get lucky, right? When they land upon some Christian truth or another Christian truth. And they leverage those things for their own way of dealing with the soul. They have no idea where they're going to land that plane with their counselee. Or maybe they have an idea. But it's not the same idea as the Christian. And it's not like these uh, soft sciences of which psychology is, is one has a long track history, all right? <laughs> the formal, if you want to talk formal, establishment of psychology as a scientific, I, I, I want to somewhat put that in quotes, as a scientific discipline, the formal establishment was the late 19th century. 19th century. The top 15 significant contributors to the history of psychology have only been alive since the mid to late 1800s. And every one of them, every one of the 15, lived into the 1900s. That's how new this stuff is. New doesn't mean wrong. So it isn't like, oh, it's, this has been going on and building for millennia. Here are the f top 15 contributors to psychology, uh, at least according to someone's opinion. Along with their, okay, along with top 15 contributors, along with their religious affiliations, if they had any. First one, Sigmund Freud. Atheist. Um, I get it. Psychology, you know, they don't even listen to Freud anymore. He was goofy. <laughs> okay, well, he kicked the football down the field. All right? B.F. Skinner adopted and developed a uh, scientific and non-religious perspective. Carl Jung he distanced himself from organized religion. William James moved away from traditional Christianity. Ivan Pavlov, he, he came from a, a predominantly orthodox Christian society, but there has been no specific details about his own personal religious views. Jean Piaget, I remember 
being taught about him, I think he added something significant to the idea of cognitive development in children. We were taught about him when I was in college for education. Well, he grew up in a Protestant home and then focused on this cognitive development without overtly expressing religious or non-religious views. John B. Watson, he was raised in a Protestant Christian family, and his early years may have been influenced by that background, although there are no specific details. Abraham Maslow, he had a Jewish background as his family was Jewish immigrants from Russia, but Maslow himself identified as secular or humanistic rather than being strongly aligned with religion. Eric Erickson, he had a Jewish heritage but wasn't overtly religious. Stanley Milgram was Jewish. He was born to Jewish parents in the Bronx, New York, but there is no prominent documentation of his beliefs. Albert Bandura, no publicly disclosed details regarding religion. Same with Mary Ainsworth, Noam Chomsky. He was a secular Jew. Lev Vygotsky, had a Jewish background but no open confession. Carl Rogers was known to have a humanistic and client-centered approach which focused on the individual's self-actualization. So I say bristle. It's because none of these sound like churchmen to me. These are not your apostles and your prophets and your evangelists and elders and deacons. The word of God and prayer were unlikely to serve as repositories for these founders of the science of the soul. So Lydia asked me um, the other day if I would ever consider going to a therapist, or maybe she said, get counseling, right? Like, maybe she kind of stepped back and looked at dad going, cuckoo, are you ever, I don't think that was it. I think it was part of these types of discussions. And my immediate reaction was, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go. It doesn't cross my mind to go. But, I mean, does it mean I don't believe in counseling? No, I believe in I believe in counseling. However, I think I'm of the school that has enough distrust for some of these names I just read. But I'm of the school that counseling should come from Christians. And historically, that is what Christ has provided for us in his church. Via, what, family upbringing? The fellowship of the saints, teaching and shepherding of the elders, these are all forms and avenues for counseling. Though I wouldn't pursue Christian counseling from outside of the church, that doesn't mean you're doing something wrong by getting advice that way. My caution to you, if you get your advice that way, is to keep your counselor honest. I don't know if things get really bad how you're going to do that, but you've got to keep them honest. He or she should keep God and his word at the forefront of any sessions, any meetings. 
the front and center focus cannot be your soul. I hope you hear that. The front and center focus cannot be your soul. God is always first. We are to seek subordination to Him. Life is His story. We've been made to play a part in it. Now, I think some good has come of the study of the soul out of psychology, right? I believe insights have helped the church. I I think Piaget's insights were helpful for child development. And and it's because we, we now maybe notice layers of motivation better. You know, how the mind might deal with something, character development. We, we see it, a, a benefit of familial and social influences on a person and how they think. Now, it's not that the church never spotted these things, never spotted trends. I think that would be giving way too much credit to this latecomer psychology. But now those things are being like documented. That's good. And I think psychological studies will develop, will develop into something highly useful to the church and the broader society, but you need God and his word to be the primary shapers of it. I'm not going to spend any more time on that. Right? Well, probably a little bit, but my hope is to offer your soul what I can as an elder in Christ's church in regard to the fears you may be experiencing in life. And I will state from the beginning that I think the great key to ridding yourself of fear is to grow in your love for God. We are to mature in our love for Him. The idea is that Perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. So a perfecting love will cause it to diminish as it goes. Here's the approach I plan to take in the four sermons to come. Along with some of the passages I'll share of Scripture that have been informing my thoughts You can write these down if you want, but you can also go back and listen to the sermon later if you like. We start with God. First sermon, next sermon, I should say, we start with God. That'll be the name of the sermon. We start with God. He is our creator. And and when we fell into sin because of his love for us, he became our savior, our redeemer, our sanctifier. And since he created us, he owns us, and he knows how he created us. He knows what we need. There are no mysteries. Nothing is hid from him in all creation, and certainly nothing is hid from him in our souls. We are always laid bare, naked, you might say, before him. Also, God gave to humanity his word. So it's God and his word. And when the Holy Spirit affects a change to that person's inner man, that word becomes alive to us in a way it never was before. 
It has power attached to it. Therefore, it operates, it operates the Word of God with precision in us. And we grow. We respond by faith to all the new things God wants to show us. We become stronger. A real God, really here, really working in us and with us. Not a distant God that people like to theorize about. We respond by faith to all the new things God wants to show us. We become stronger. We become less afraid. We find peace to be a greater part of our experience. One passage that will inform that sermon is Hebrews 6, 17 through 20. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The next sermon is going to be called Next is the Story. It will be my third sermon. And it will focus on who Whose story, whose story provides the great narration of history? Why are we here? Whose story? Well, it's the story of the triune God. It's the story of the Son sent to save and to rule. It's, it's a story filled with villains and heroes. Some are visible, some invisible. That's why I wanted to pray. However, we are merely participants. We're playing our part, you and me, taking one side or the other, sometimes both at times, right? And we should be heroes in the story, in our own story under him. Sometimes we don't act like heroes, though, do we? Not at all. And so the story involves God's forgiveness and patience and mercy and discipline. In his story, there are battles, there's wilderness times, little enclaves of hearth and home, but ultimately the son who rules gains one advantage after another. His story also involves justice and revenge and vindication upon the land and its people, upon the heavens, in its every corner and crevice. It is a great privilege to be on the winning side of history. It makes our life meaningful now. What we think and do matters now. Passage I'll touch upon in that sermon will be Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's always a bad sign if you glaze over when Scripture's being read, right? I mean, that, that is a bad sign for our souls. But the more intimate you are with any passage, the less you glaze over when that passage is being read. Fine, uh, next sermon after that is you as the protagonist of your life, right? The protagonist of your life, the main character in a positive way. This sermon will focus more on your part in the story, We've been made to play a particular part to serve God. And this requires learning what it is we've been given to do. Our primary purpose, everybody here's primary purpose is to keep the most important commands. If there's nothing else you ever think about, keep the most important commands. The first is to love God fully, as Benson remarked earlier, right? With a superlative love. We must love God above any creature whatsoever and nothing, and love nothing besides him but what we love for him and in subordination to him. Secondly, okay, and this is a little bit different, is our calling. Why, why is for sell for sell? What is he made for sell to be and to do? What is my vocation? What, what is, what is, why me? Why my thumbprint? And that gets revealed during your lifetime. It takes a lifetime of revealing. You, you are learning it, you are being it, you become it. It's ongoing with our growth in Jesus and the place and time God has pre-constructed for us in history. I've got a book I want to write on that. I will caution, okay, in this, that sermon, that sometimes we kick against the goads when it comes to being content in the vocation God has made for us, we want something different, something we think will be better for us. Part of life is to learn contentment, and that can be a long and hard lesson. At other times, our discontent is caused by a heavenly impulse. It's God stirring us to move a little from one thing to the next. My primary text is going to be Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And then Jesus later, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Final sermon will be um, count your antagonists. Count your antagonists. And this will be a sermon that points out that Christ's story has enemies. 
They are enemies to him and potentially to you. And the enemies get boiled down to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we'll explore each of those in their contribution to our fears. Our primary goal is always to submit ourselves to God and not become our own greatest enemy. That's huge. We disobey God by indulging in our sinful flesh. And we certainly do not want to become an enemy in our own church, household, or at home. However, at times we will fail against that enemy and give in to our sinful nature. And we will need to become better and more faithful protagonists. The world, the second thing, around us is afraid. They do not have the answers. They are, by God's standards, default enemies. They are not in a good place and would prefer not to be reminded about it. They'd rather make up their own story. Therefore, worldly men can appreciate how a secular therapist counsel people to promote self, self-realization, self-esteem, self-promotion. Unfortunately, since secular psychologists do not adhere to God's story, they serve their clients abysmally. For storyless counseling is a dead-end road. It actually runs, runs from reality rather than setting people on the right course. Finally, the devil is an antagonist. He hates the triune God. He hates the king. He hates all those who take the side of Jesus. He hates all those who don't. He just hates, except for himself. He loves himself, like to no measure. And he has no greater pleasure, therefore, if permitted, than to be your antagonist. He's a liar, he's a murderer, and he loses. And the passage I will use, one of them in that sermon is from John, 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray and I ask that this would be, uh, as an introduction, beneficial to this audience, and that you would use um, the preparations and the words spoken to be uh, to rest nicely on us, that we would also freely communicate and speak and question and talk about these things, that you would be um, having a victory in every soul. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.